Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. The show that is so bad if you play it in reverse, well, it just sounds like gibberish in reverse. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I'm your host, Brian Levine. Uh, hey, got a great show tonight for you. Great show. Uh, in pipe parts, I'm going to touch on quickly some uh, pipe shop traditions of the past that have uh, gone away. And then my guest tonight is Eric Hollenbeck, and uh, Eric's a pipe smoker, and Eric's got a lot more to his story. I was really excited to sit down and record an interview with him, and you're just going to have to listen. He is uh, he's a great guy. Uh, and then we'll have uh, music and mailbag and a rant, all that coming up on uh, this week's episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. And remember, you must be of legal smoking age to listen to this show wherever you are so uh if you're under age turn it off now okay did you do that great um and on top of that don't forget we put out new shows every tuesday night 8 p.m eastern time and they are available for uh re-listen and download for the eternity afterwards so if you've missed a show or uh, you know got behind don't worry all those shows are still sitting there waiting for you to catch up and uh, speaking of catch up i failed to mention that uh, last week i was the uh, guest co-host on country squire radio so if you haven't already listened to that go check that out bo and i got to hang out together while uh, john david went off and got married and uh, congratulations to him so he's back in uh, back in the saddle. Uh, all right, real quickly because because uh, we got a lot to get through, but I'll give you a quick trip report. We went up to the Raleigh Pipe Show. Uh, my wife and I drove up there in the morning. We got there about noon and spent uh, three and a half hours just walking around, visiting, saying hi. Uh, didn't get anything except uh, thanks to one of the uh, regular collectors and attender and attendees at the show. I was able to acquire. Walt Disney World pipe number six, uh, number sixty. So, got that for my collection, and I've actually smoked it twice, and it smokes uh, smokes relatively well. So, uh, take a couple more bowls to get it broken in, and uh, hopefully, sometime this week, I'll put uh, a couple of pictures of it up on uh, the Disney Tobacchiana page on Facebook, which is my collection and some other folks that have some Disney stuff related to tobacco. So. If you haven't already checked that out, do that. doesn't cost you anything, and you get to see some pipes of the past. All right, enough rambling. Let's get the show rolling. Everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go. All right, as the uh, birds are chirping in the background. Um, so I thought, you know, th- those of you that are under the age of 40 er, or haven't been smoking a pipe for too long uh, would, you know, would like to hear what, uh, what, a, what a smoke shop used to be like when you, or a pipe shop when you walked into it. Uh, those of us that have been in pipe shops over the last 20 some odd years, well, we've seen this. Um, so the first thing is, Custom blended tobaccos, and this goes all the way back to the days uh, prior to Alfred Dunhill in uh, you know opening, and so you used to go into the shop, and they would have 
uh, some components and they'd take these components and make a blend based off of uh, based off of suggestions and recommendations and things that you thought you might enjoy. Well, they would actually keep a catalog of those blends for their specific customers. Uh, even most recently here at McCraney's, there were a couple of customers that had their own special blends. And what uh, what would happen is, especially for the for the better customers that were regulars, well, and even I've done this in the past when I worked in a smoke shop, you would pre-blend that special mixture for that customer and let it sit for a couple of weeks. So you knew the customer's routine, you knew when they were going to order or come into the shop, and you knew about how much they smoked, so you would have their blend already pre-mixed so that it had a chance to marry. Um, now you you know you could go into a smoke shop and they would work with you for a while on finding your perfect blend or your your favorite blends or you know they'd work with you to develop your taste and develop what you wanted out of a pipe so it would it sometimes it would take months it would literally take months of tweaking and trying and working and and uh, you know they'd work with a customer to develop that blend that that became your your favorite and your personal blend. Uh, that's why even right now in the world there are uh, Dunhill's 965 is actually called My Mixture 965 and that's because that was the custom blend number 965 that they had done and they had thousands after that that you would uh, that you could walk into a store and get uh, Paul the Paul Olson stores in Denmark had My Own Blend and you could walk in there and get those custom blended for you in yeah it was your specific blend so besides creating a specific blend for you uh, a handful of pipe shops actually had a pipe maker that worked right there literally a pipe maker that worked right in the shop that would be in the style of uh, of the pat you know, in the in the US you would see uh, the connoisseur shop in New York City where Ed Burak had pipe making going on right there uh, LJ Peretti in Boston you could walk in there and in the uh, in the past Mr. Peretti would be sitting in the front window making pipes and getting them ready for sale so you had shops that had their own pipe makers working in there and in conjunction with that they would also do pipe repairs for you right there in-house so you'd walk in if you had a problem they might be able to fix it simply right away or you may have to leave your pipe for a couple days uh, pipe repair became as time went on and when i was working for dunhill in the late 90s we didn't do the repairs right there in the shop, but we had a repair guy that worked for all the Dunhill stores. So we'd take your pipe in and we'd mail it off for you and then call you when it came back and it'd be gone for two, three weeks. But in, uh, in the days of old, a full service pipe and tobacco shop would have a pipe repair guy literally sitting there right in the store might be the same guy that's also selling you pipes and might be the same guy that's also uh, the owner of the shop but they'd actually do the work right there in the shop for you cut a new tenon, put a new stem on whatever it was uh, they could do it there and usually within a couple of days or sometimes right away uh, the other feature that a lot of pipe shops have gone away from uh, except i know of one that still has it is Having a uh, buffing wheel and wax and all the stuff to clean your pipe right there out for the public to use. 
So you could walk in and if you knew how to do it, you could clean your own pipe. Or if you were a regular customer of theirs and it, you, know, you obviously there wasn't an internet back then, uh, you could walk up to them and they'd clean your pipe real quick for you. Maybe give you a quick uh, reaming of the cake for you and uh, buff and polish the stem for you right there while you're waiting. You'd pick up your tobacco and you'd walk out with a brand new clean pipe ready to go again so no need for all these home remedies for how to clean a pipe and how to maintain your pipes no you could just go into your local tobacco shop and free of charge they'd give you a simple quick reaming of the bowl to get the cake down wipe it down on the inside buff the stem polish the stem and make sure that your pipe was clean and working well so the pipe shop of old was a full service environment for you to go in custom blended stuff, custom made pipes, uh, and then all the repairs and the maintenance of the pipe all right there in the pipe shop. Plus, you got to hang out with your friends and catch up on the day's news and see what was going on around the around the town. So, uh, all right, that's enough of pipe parts. So in just a minute, we'll have Eric Hollenbeck. This is Internet Radio. I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. At Cornell & Deal, we think the best things in life are better with age, and we are passionate about creating the best possible pipe tobacco available. Fueled by this passion, we introduced the Cellar Series, a collection of blends like no other. While the blends in this series are ready to smoke now, each one has been meticulously designed to optimize depth and complexity as the tobacco ages in the tin. Currently, the Cellar Series is comprised of Oak Alley, Chenay's Cake, Joie de Vivre, Old Grove, and Bourbon Blue, but we will be unveiling new additions to this very special series as time goes on. Pick up a tin to smoke now and save a few for later enjoyment so that you can experience all the richness and subtlety each blend will reveal through the years. Cornell & Deal's Cellar Series. The secret ingredient is time. Contact your local or online retailer for information. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and I am, uh, you know, I, I'm just, I'm really excited to have our guest on the show with us because, I mean, what a history, what a story. So we'll, we'll just start with that, and please welcome Eric Holland back to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brian. That's uh, it's a pleasure being here with you. I I got to tell you, I'm I'm a little worried about getting your getting your entire story into one show. So let's just start it off with uh, you. You were born and raised in Northern California, and then you end up in how did how did you end up in Vietnam? Well, I'm uh, I'm from a very very small town in Northern California. In fact. Uh, Humboldt County. Humboldt County is four times the size of the state of Rhode Island and has one tenth the population. <laughs> but that, so we are uh, we're a huge big county with all timber and uh, lions and tigers and bears. Oh no, um, very very few people. We got four thousand square miles and a hundred thousand people. Um, so I'm from a very, very rural part of uh, California. People don't think of California as having this rural that uh, 
it's it's four hour drive in any direction to get to a uh, metropolitan area. That's how not, that's how rural we are. Not a lot of WalMarts right near you. Um, we have none. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I uh, I was drafted at eighteen and um, went to uh, basic training at uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, under the snow cap of uh, Mount Rainier in the middle of the winter. God almighty, you don't know cold. You and I don't know cold until you uh, get up there in Washington under Rainier. And then uh, and then from there, uh, they sent me to Fort Polk, Louisiana. They called Fort Polk Little Vietnam because it was uh, the closest thing they had um, in a a military base in this country to match the weather in Vietnam, they figured. And I took AIT training. That's another eight weeks. And then uh, got on a 707 and flew to Benoit Air Base, Benoit, Vietnam. I got to tell you a story. Yeah. So we fly in on a commercial 707. I think, if I remember right, I went over on a United and I came back on an American because during that first part of the war, all of the uh, airline companies had to, by law, I guess, or, or had a contract, I don't know, but they had to take some of their planes, complete with stewardesses and everything, and use them to transport troops. So we fly to Benoit, and they roll over one of them stairs. Remember those stairs they used to roll up to the airplanes? Yeah. And two of the biggest Marine MPs I have ever seen in my life, those guys were gargantuan, <laughs> climb up the stairs, and they stand on either side of the door. And I thought, what the, what the hell is going on? <laughs> but they think we're going to run? You know? <laughs> I couldn't figure it out. What are those guys for? Until you stepped out of that air-conditioned airplane into that blast furnace of heat and all of a sudden found your legs didn't work anymore. In fact, your knees were not connected to the rest of your body. Oh, no. (laughs) Those guys caught you, got you all straightened back up again and your hands on the handrail and got you started down the stairs. Oh, my God, that was incredible. So not not a lot of weather like that in Northern California, huh? Uh, no. We get 60 inches of rain. <clears throat> we are uh, 85% humidity all the time, which means we're only 15% away from being goldfish. <laughs> um, no, there's there's nothing like that. No, our highest high we ever get is. Uh, 68, 70, and our lowest low we ever get is about uh, uh, 36, 32. <laughs> so, so the so the story that was sent to me by one of our listeners is a story about you uh, just recently getting three bronze service stars. So if you can just kind of fill us in quickly on how that happened. Which, uh, it only took, what, 50 years, 45 years? Uh, 47 years later, yeah. Um, they, uh, at Benoit, they, they lined us all up, 
and uh, and told us where we were going to go. And I was the only one that they picked uh, to go to the 101st Airborne uh, A Company in the Ashaw Valley. Um, and, uh, and that was a company of uh, 68 guys. We were in the jungle the entire time. We never came out of the jungle, 322 days out of the year in combat. And we... Uh, and I was the RTO. I was the radioman. And then, uh, then I got discharged, and I got discharged early, about two two and a half months early, because my dad died, and I was sole supporter of my mother and younger brother, and uh, so the army uh, discharged me. Well, that meant that I didn't get out on kind of normal channel, see, it was, it was different. Because normally when you discharge, you, uh, you spend your year in Vietnam, then you come back and you're still in the Army for another 8, 10 months, and they can get all the paperwork done and everything on you, and you do work for the Army on, uh, here in the States, and then they send you home. Well, me, they just brought back off of the airplane, um, 32 hours, 30 hours, 30 hours after being under fire in the jungle, I was standing in my, uh, mom's, uh, kitchen. Wow. Um, so it was, uh, it was too quick for him. And then, um, about five years ago, four, four years ago, one of my platoon members, Dodie Gaines, emailed me. And he had found a uh, order where I received the uh, Air Combat Award, uh, the Air Combat Medal, uh, dated 1968. And he said, did you get this? And I said, no. So I took that set of orders down to the local VA down here, downtown, and I asked the lady, what am I supposed to do with this? And she said, uh, why don't you give it to us, let us fill it out, and we're going to ask for all of the medals that you have coming and uh, and see if they honor it or not. Well, I didn't know what that meant, so and I didn't ask any questions. They just sent it off. And then four years later, on my birthday, it was uh, uh, December 4th, this, this last year, and uh, my wife and I took Monday off. Monday was my birthday, and I, we took Monday off. Uh, only the third Monday we've ever taken off in 47 years I have in Blue Ox. And, um, and I came down to feed animals late in the afternoon, and I checked the mailbox, and here is a uh, letter, a, a big envelope from the, uh, from the Army, and it said that uh, um, in the sense of justice, we have decided to go back because there's a two-year moratorium. You have two years to ask for, for your records to be updated. Well, I'm, what, 45 years missed that mark. Yes. Um, wow. <clears throat> but the Army said uh, uh, that for justice they were going to do it, and they... Uh, 
and they awarded me, uh, oh, geez, I have it here someplace. They awarded me the Air Combat Award. They took away my Vietnam um, campaign medal, combat campaign medal, and gave me a Vietnam combat, combat campaign medal with three unit bronze stars on it. Um, medal and all, not just the ribbon. I got the ribbon and the medal. And um, and I got the um, Arvin uh, Medal of, uh, not Medal of Honor, Medal of something. I forget. I got two Arvin Medals and a, uh, I got another one too. I forget what the third one was, or fourth one. Anyway, I got four medals. And they, the thing that stunned me so much about it is that they, uh, wrote down the campaigns that we were in. I have told people always that we were always in the jungle. We never came out of the jungle. We never spent <clears throat> two days on the same mountaintop. We would move every day from one mountaintop to another. And uh, and I don't know if people really believe believe me or not, but it's right in the campaigns. It shows right in there. We went from the uh, Tet Offensive campaign to Tet Offensive 2 campaign to the um, um, North, North uh, the DMZ um, Offensive campaign, and it shows the dates, and the dates go from, from the end of one campaign, the next day the next campaign starts. There's no lag time in between, nothing. Wow. So, And, and now you've finally proudly got the medals that you earned yes yes so that was nice of the army to do that because they sure as hell didn't have to do that i mean it, they said right in the letter there's a two-year moratorium or a two-year time frame and uh and you miss that kiddo <laughs> um and i had to agree i kind of did miss that yes and then the part of the article that intrigued me and got me to uh, reach out to you was the uh, was the author writes um, pulling a pipe from the pocket of his striped Ben Davis shirt and stuffing it with tobacco. Uh, when did uh, you start smoking a pipe? When I was in high school, and uh, I was the only one in the company that smoked a pipe. Um, every seven days we would blow the trees down in a, um, circle about a hundred feet in diameter. And that was called a landing zone or LZ. And then, uh, helicopters would come in with resupplies, uh, meaning food and ammunition. They bring us food and ammunition, uh, every seven days. <clears throat> and the food that we got was all, was two kinds. It was sea uh, rations, which are cans, um, about the size of tuna fish cans, um, all different kinds of meals in, in these cans in these little boxes. And every box had a four-pack of cigarettes in it. And I remember there were Cools, Viceroy, Pall Mall, there was a fourth one. Um, was it camel? No, no camels. No, God, people would kill for camels. 
um, <laughs> when somebody got a letter from home with a pack of camels in it. <laughs> that was that was tall cotton. Um, there was one other one, but every once in a while, like every twenty-five or or thirty, forty of these sea rations would be a um, pouch of Sir Walter Raleigh instead of the four pack of cigarettes. And nobody in the company smoked a uh, pipe except me. So I was in tall cotton all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I had pipe tobacco all the time. I never had to worry. <laughs> wow. I traded all those. Uh, um, and then the other kind of food that we got were called lerps. And uh, they were freeze-dried. Freeze and I had to... Uh, eat the lerps. Nobody liked the lerps. Um, I didn't mind them, but nobody liked them uh, except me. Because, And I had to eat them because I couldn't carry the, um, the sea rations. I was a radioman. I carried the radio. And the Prick 25 weighed uh, 42 pounds, and, you, and I carried three extra batteries at five pounds apiece. So we're up to 57 pounds now, and um, and then grenades and ammunition and uh, um, and then food for seven days, and I weighed 120 pounds. <laughs> so I was carrying a 100-pound pack, and I weighed 120. <laughs> wow. That uh, was pretty funny. That's a perfect place for us to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about pipe smoking, and then we'll get into uh, the Blue Ox mill work. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. Meet Josh. Everyone at SmokingPipes.com holds customers as a high priority, but nobody interacts with them more personally than Josh. He's our professor of pipes, if you will. As a previous professor of history, Educating the customer comes easily to him. He loves explaining the history of a particular pipe to a customer or coaching his customer service team. I love to help customers find that perfect piece for their collection. It's my job to make sure there's a smile on the other end of the line, and I'm more than happy to be the one to put it there. And although Josh's job can sometimes be quite demanding, he doesn't mind. He loves his job at SmokingPipes.com. Why? Because I don't just sell pipes, I smoke them. Call us at 1-888-366-0345. That's 1-888-366-0345. Or check us out online at smokingpipes.com. We are quality. We are experts. We are smokingpipes.com. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show visiting with Eric Hollenbeck and... All right, so you so you started smoking a pipe in high school. Do you remember what kind of pipe or tobacco that was? My no, not not very good. I'm seventy, so that was quite a while ago. But best of my memory, that I've always smoked uh, Doctor Grable. Is it? Is that right, yep. Grable? Yep. Um, I've always smoked those pipes, and. Um, um, and I smoke, uh, I used to smoke like a cherry blend, but now I smoke, uh, Cavendish, black, black Cavendish and natural Cavendish mixed together. 
What made you want to smoke a pipe in high school? Because nobody else did. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, um, and a pipe, you know, I got to tell you, uh, a pipe is a wonderful thing for me anyway, uh, because it gives me an industry, gives me something to do as I look out the window and daydream or I, or I, uh, sit outside and daydream and I think about things. It's, it's a catalyst for, uh, for thinking for me. And you're, you're kind of preaching to the choir here with that. Oh, okay. <laughs> or as my wife would say, it's something to stick in my mouth instead of saying stupid stuff. <laughs> that works too. So have you, have you smoked a pipe continuously all of your life now? No, I, uh, I have three daughters and when the youngest daughter <clears throat> was five years old, they put the fear of Job into her at school and uh, she came home and said she didn't want me to smoke anymore because she didn't want me to die. And, uh, so for 18 years I quit smoking and then, uh, after the girls left the, uh, after the girls left, then, uh, then I started, uh, smoking a pipe again. And did you go right back to the same Dr. Grabo's and, uh, and a, and a yep, basic yep. Cavendish? Yep, I did. I did. I'm a, uh, not very, uh, creative, I guess. I just <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I get something that works and stick with it. You're uh, you're very creative, but in other ways, which we're going to get to in just a minute. But do you do you smoke your pipe all day long, or is it more of a sit down and relax with? Um, because I have a sawmill in a in a uh, mill workshop, I can't smoke it um, in the shop or anywhere on the ground. So I, um, oh, five or six times out of the day, I. Uh, um, go to one of the designated areas and uh, smoke my pipe. Um, but the fire hazard is too great. Yeah, so now let, let's also talk about that. Let's talk, it's the Blue Ox Millworks, and it's a historic park and a school of, as, as it says on the website, uh, a school of traditional arts, and everybody needs to go check out the website. It's www.blueoxmill.com and it kind of all right why how'd you start it why and what all goes on there i mean there's a ton of stuff that you guys are doing okay so it's uh it's two acres uh probably a half or better under roof old buildings that I built over the last 47 years. Um, I've been collecting the equipment forever. Um, we have, uh, we have a sawmill, we have a resaw, we have a gang edger, we have uh, four sided molding machines, two of them. We, uh, do all four sides, make any, uh, pattern of molding ever made. I grind all of my own knives. Um, even uh, 
redwood rain gutter uh, for houses. I'm the last one in the United States that'll make any size and any style of wooden rain gutter. We ship all over it um, to very, very, very historic buildings. You know, I just got done with uh, 230 feet of gutter for Emily Dickinson's house in Massachusetts. Wow. Um, to duplicate her old gutters on that house. Then we have a complete uh, uh, 9,000 square foot um, wood shop, uh, lays that'll turn up to uh, 18 feet long. Uh, we do turnings, moldings, doors, windows, uh, all the traditional way. We have a blacksmith shop, we have a machine shop, we have a foundry uh, where we can cast parts. We have a uh, stained glass shop, a ceramic shop, and now we have a lapidary shop. And I have to tell you that out of all of that equipment, the newest piece that we have of heavy equipment is 1948. <laughs> it goes from 1948 back to 1866, and it all works. So, so we have probably a couple hundred handmade or artisan pipe makers that listen to this show, and they're all used to working with wood and lathes, and I think a lot of them are probably drooling right now and salivating hearing about the machinery. Well, we have work in every state in the Union, uh, including Washington, D.C. I've got work in the White House. Um and uh, yeah, we've done uh, many, many, many really, really historic, historic buildings uh, over the 47 years that we've been doing this. So what got you interested in starting it? PTSD. Um, I, uh, I told you that 36 hours or 30 hours after being under combat, um, in combat for 322 days. Yeah. Um, I was standing in my mother's uh, kitchen. That was at 5 o'clock Saturday afternoon, and I went back to work at the job that I had left because uh, it was all set up all ahead of time at 5 o'clock in the morning on Monday morning. And we didn't know nothing about shell shock back then. You know, we didn't know nothing about nothing. And uh, I lasted about two and a half years, um, long enough for my brother to get going and, and uh, get my mom. He and I got my mom back on her feet again. Um, and everything was copacetic. And, uh, and then I had a meltdown. And I quit. Uh, working in the woods, and I started. I went into the bank, Brian, <laughs> and I, I said to the banker, uh, "I want to borrow three hundred dollars. I want to start a logging company." And the banker started to laugh, and he laughed so damn loud the entire bank turned around and looked at me. I, I mean, I felt about two inches tall, and that banker said, "You know, Eric," he said, uh, "I'm going to give you the money." And you'll be back for more, and I'll give you some more, and you'll be back for more. And at some point, I'm going to cut you off. But he said, I want you to know something. You will pay for an education. 
one way or another, you will pay for an education. And at uh, 22 years old, I had no idea what he was talking about. At 70 years old, I know damn well what he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, life is a uh, life's a hell of an educator. <laughs> it's going to learn you one way or the other. It's going to learn you, yeah. See, he knew I was a high school dropout. <clears throat> and that's why we can work with the kids that we work with. Yeah, cause We're you... in our 18th year with a program for uh, dropouts, high school dropouts, and a very, very successful program um, in conjunction with the uh, Office of Education here in town, and we are the carrot. So in order to come here <clears throat> full-time, two days a week, they have to go to a classroom three days a week, and they uh, earn their high school diploma, and then they come here and they work on uh, projects and sell projects out of the gift store, and they get the money for it. Wow. So, in, you know, with everything that the world threw at you, now you're giving back and helping out these other kids that so they don't have the rough road that you kind of did. Yeah, well, I... I understand them. You ever you ever hear that uh, <clears throat> saying, what don't kill you makes you stronger? Yep. Okay, what does that really mean? Um, does it make you physically stronger? Yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit. Does it make you smarter? Well, that could be a little bit too. Does it make you more spiritually stronger, yeah, there's probably some of that in there. But what I think the strength comes from is that it gives you empathy. All of a sudden, you understand because you've walked a mile in them boots. You get it. And that's why I can work with these kids. I understand them. I get it. Um, what they need <laughs> is not to be told, and I tell the uh, instructors, um, do not ever tell them you didn't sand that enough. <clears throat> tell them how wonderful it looks. Tell them how great they did. Tell them what a magnificent job they did. They got eyeballs. They can see. They know. So the next one, they'll do better because you've told them how good they are. Um uh, They've spent their whole life with the school system telling them they're junk and uh, um, and stupid and not good. Um, you got to just pound into them how good they are and how wonderful a human being they are and how talented they are. Um, and they will, over the course of time, rise to the occasion. I, I mean, that's, it, it's just incredible. And... In, in addition to running the mill and doing the and doing the stuff for kids, you've got summer workshops that you guys do. You you offer tours for people that are coming up that way. Uh, plus, you've you've done some writing yourself. Yeah, in in 1992, I wrote a, a series of uh, 17 poems. And they're not good. They rhyme and, you know, like Robert Service. They're that kind of poetry. And that's 
that's not in style anymore, but that's okay. Um, I wrote this series of poems called Uncle Sam's Tour Guide to Southeast Asia, and it was about my um, time in uh, in Vietnam and uh, and in combat. Um, and I did it mostly, Brian, to purge for myself. You know, I didn't yeah. write it so nobody would ever read it. I didn't, wasn't thinking of that. Um, well, a, a theater producer got a hold of it <coughs> a year and a half ago, <coughs> came up and met with us and teamed up with us, and now we are uh, in the process of... Uh, putting together a play based on, uh, on these poems. We have a writer out of New York, um, a playwright out of New York, uh, named, uh, James McManus. And my God, what a wordsmith he is. Holy crap. <laughs> he's, he's incredible. Um, and we have just finished the script as of, uh, 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 Friday last week, and now uh, are going to uh, start, I guess the next step is they pick actors and actresses and start uh, rehearsing, and uh, we hope to put put the first one on by um, midsummer <clears throat> up in uh, Medford, Oregon, then we're going to come here to Blue Ox, and then we're going to go to Salinas, and then to San Francisco, and we'll see where it goes from there. Wow. Oh, that's not quite true. Uh, Denver has said that they want to do it. Denver Playhouse and La Jolla Playhouse out of San Diego. Um, I guess La Jolla is by San Diego. Um, hell, I can't even spell it. <laughs> uh, has uh, signed up to do it in October. So it's a uh, it's a play about veterans, and uh, and I think it's really really timely and and really important to be done right now. You know we have worked with uh, young veterans. We got uh, in two thousand in two thousand and fourteen, we put together a team of. Uh, combat veterans from every branch of the service, including Coast Guard. Mercedes was our Coast Guard. We had uh, uh, 22, 22 veterans, and we, um, off of one single photograph, the only known photograph in the world of the hearse that carried Abraham Lincoln, one photograph, three newspaper articles that gave us the clues of color and some other things, and one bill of lading from the railroad um, that told us the size of the rear wheel. Suddenly we had one dimension, that's all we needed, and we created a scale and we built an exact replica of the hearse that carried Abraham Lincoln in 1865, and it was in the um, 150th commemoration in Springfield, Illinois. It was the centerpiece of the two-day uh, reenactment of Lincoln's burial there. And now it's been four months out of the year in the Lincoln Museum in Springfield, and the other 
time in the uh, Staub Family Museum in uh, Springfield. Wow. I'm looking at pictures of it on your website right now, and all I all I can say is, you know, I, I, I always encourage our listeners to check out the websites of whatever whatever the guest is. This is one where you have to go and see what Eric is doing. You need to go to blueoxmill.com. And it's just, I'm, I'm literally amazed at the stuff that you're able to do at the mill and the things that you're doing for people with the mill. Now, it's amazing how you can take a, a, de- uh, a defect, a deficit, a, uh, what's a handicap. The shell shock is a handicap. Let me clue you. Um, and, and work inside your handicap and work to your strengths um, and create something that that is worth having around. You know, that's why I I built Blue Ox so that I don't got to go to the store, see. (laughs) I don't don't have to go outside for nothing. Uh, My tobacco... But I get that online, so um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Uh, um, I could even make my own pipes if I if I had to. By the way, in Vietnam, I did. Oh no! Yeah, I finally uh, broke. Uh, uh, I broke my stem, and uh, I went over with two pipes, and uh, <laughs> I finally broke the stem. On one of them, and I was afraid that I would um, break the other one. Um, so I made my own pipe, and I made it out of a piece of bamboo in the jungle, about uh, almost two inches in no, no, not that big, inch and a half in diameter. <laughs> and it had a piece of um, mortar round, shrapnel from a mortar round embedded in the side of it. And that same shrapnel had cut my antenna off when that round went off right next to me. I had my 10-foot whip antenna on uh, up trying to uh, um, make contact with a fire base. And and that round went off and it cut my antenna right off above my head. So I made a pipe out of that piece of bamboo. and smoke that to remember <laughs> how close I had come. Wow. Well, Eric, we will wrap this up with the fast five final questions. And again, there's no right answer, no wrong answer, just whatever comes to your mind. And everybody gets to answer these same five questions. So are you ready? Yes. What is your favorite pipe? Uh, Grable. And? Uh, uh, Lark little ones and what is your favorite tobacco uh, uh, Cavendish uh, mixture of black Cavendish and natural Cavendish and what is your favorite drink oh god you're getting a laugh at me Paps Blue Ribbon and I'm having one right now good old PBR PBR <laughs> Uh, yep, 
can't uh, listen. Nothing, nothing's better than a good fresh PBR. Yeah, and and the the hilarious part is that I still drink them warm because <laughs> we got warm beer twice in Vietnam, and uh, so here lately in the last couple of years, I've uh, started drinking them at room temperature to remember that. <laughs> and I like it. It's okay. Uh. <laughs> When it's when it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? A book, and I like um, uh, historic books um, that are n- nonfiction. That's that's the kind of books that I really like. And remember, I don't read well, so what I do is I go to the library and get books on tape. <laughs> <laughs> You can cheat if you want. <laughs> uh, listen, I got a I got a black belt in cheating, so <laughs> I don't I don't write very well. So guess what I do? I do a weekly podcast. <laughs> and then the final question that we ask everybody is: Do you have a favorite pipe smoking related memory that we haven't talked about yet? No, Mike. My favorite one is that pipe that I made and and smoked yeah. with a piece of shrapnel in it. Yeah, because um, I came that close. That was <laughs> that was close, my friend. Well, Eric, let me let me say a few things to you from all of us. First of all, thank you for your service and welcome home. And I don't think I've ever said this to any guest on the pipes magazine radio show but you are a true american hero and an example for everybody to look up to oh no i'm just (laughs) i'm just eric (laughs) (laughs) well everybody needs to go and check out your website and reach out to him and you know let's just just go look at all the stuff he's doing so, Eric Hollenbeck, thank you very much for coming on the show, and thank you for telling your story, and thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me, and uh, um, and thank you for doing what you're doing. I, I think it's important. Uh, you know, people need to know that uh, that there are wonderful things about smoking, and, um, boy, it's a... Uh, it's a real blessing that we, it's one of God's gifts to us. Um, and it's a, it's not what society has painted it up to be. And with that, I'll say we'll be back in just a minute. Italians have always been known for their aesthetic passion. It's their birthright, their legacy. And just like Savinelli, it continues to grow and evolve. It is ever-changing. Milan, 1876. Achille Savinelli set out to change the way the world viewed smoking pipes, opening one of the world's first specialist tobacco shops. From one small storefront to a factory that delivered handmade pipes all over the world, the legacy he forged became one filled with success and prestige. Achilles' dream is carried on today by his family, who continues the Savinelli legacy. 
Each year, Savinelli debuts a series of new, forward-thinking designs, comprised of quality-crafted pipes shaped from some of the best briar in the world. Behind every beautiful object, there's a story. Start your own chapter. Visit your local tobacconist or premium online dealer today. This is Internet Radio. Again, let me say what a pleasure it was to talk to Eric and get to know him a little bit. It's Eric Hollenbeck and uh, Blue Ox Mill. Do check it out. All right, for music, we're going back to the wineskins because I found a song while listening to the album that I like better than the one I played before. And it's called On Fire, and this is Keith Moore of the wineskins. Sirens wail another tale of a soul in jail Set free Sleepwalking, seeing the dead Mama is upset, she always is He said, on fire on fire, burning from within, burn again, again. On fire, on fire, blown by every wind, burning to the end. On fire, bloodshot eyes. So smug in your judgment Humble yourself I he'll do it For you On fire On fire Burning from within Burn again, again On fire Again, that is uh, Keith Moore, former two-time guest of the show, pipe smoker, and uh, member of the Wineskins. The album is called Shut Me Up Sundance. Mail call. In the mailbag, before we get started with that, first of all, let me say thank you to uh, regular listener Charlie, who uh, suggested Eric as a guest, and uh, and I uh, was able to get a hold of him and make that happen, so I'm really uh, thankful for that if you have any suggestions of guests remember you can email me brian at pipesmagazine.com and if you don't hear back from me in a day or two you know email me again because sometimes stuff gets uh, caught in the in the old spam filter 
Uh, but going back to uh, last week's show, Dino said, I enjoyed the lively and fast-paced conversation with Jamie. He's not only interesting, but seems to be a lot of fun. I also like the Dan Locklear piece. Good show. Thanks, Dino. And uh, speaking of Dan Locklear, I got to spend uh, about an hour or so kind of wandering around the pipe show with him in uh, Raleigh last weekend. And then uh, Down Home Smoker says, James was an interesting guest, and uh, how he got into pipe repair is a perfect example of necessity being the mother of invention. Well done and pleasant smokes. Thank you very much. Uh, and then uh, finally, well, not finally, but uh, going back uh, two weeks ago, uh, when traveling with, uh, with pipes, uh, Lord of the Pipe Rings says, when I travel, I... Uh, when I travel, I fly, I typically load up my four-pipe Peterson pipe bag, and that goes in my messenger bag under the seat in front of me. The tamper goes in the checked luggage. I don't ever take a lighter with me. Typically, uh, typically stop by a grocery store or gas station and get some matches. I also pack the pipe cleaners in the checked luggage as well as a tin or two. Those are, those are always two tins that I've just opened the day before I left, or it's a blend I have in bulk, and just refill a tin for carrying purpose. It's actually a lot easier to travel with your pipes than you'd think. Yeah, I agree it is. Uh, and then uh, going back even further, Cortez says, uh, uh, Now if you'd only scrap that irritating bumper-slash-music soundtrack... Uh, swear to God, I'm going to start a thread about that. <laughs> well, I'm wondering, when you refer to bumper slash uh, music, are you referring to this? Or this? Or are you talking about the music at the uh, beginning and end of the shows? Uh, if you're talking about the uh, little little uh, bumper and the little scratchy stuff, um, yeah, let me know. What would you rather hear? I'm open for all suggestions. And remember, if you have any comments or questions, email me, brian, at pipesmagazine.com, or you can post them on the uh, Pipes Magazine radio show page on pipesmagazine.com. I do really like getting uh, comments and questions and, uh, you know, love reading them all and hearing what you guys would like to hear and think of. Uh, talking about ratings and reviews, iTunes is a great place for you to do that. And the most recent one we have was uh, from Tamwin33. And Tamwin writes, Enjoy every one of them. As a relatively new piper, I've learned a lot from the show and the interviews. Just great. Funny, I had just found out, uh, I just found McClellan Frogmorton on the town and they shut it down. But I think I'll enjoy exploring other blends that are similar. On note, please mention the names of the interview guests more often and especially at the end so your listeners have an easier time finding them on the web if they are interested. Thanks, Brian. Keep the faith. Uh, you are very welcome, and I will do a much better job of uh, making sure that the, your names are spelled out so that you can hear them clearly and uh, make everybody easier to find. Great suggestion. And thanks for the uh, feedback on iTunes. We really do appreciate that. Uh, and again, comments or questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. And after just an annoying bumper moment, rant time. Boy. Cowboy. Cowboy. Mm -hmm. 
Time to unload on the FDA. Yes, the FDA all along has been saying that they want a nicotine-free society. They want a nicotine-free society. And the way they're going to start doing that is they are going to start regulating the limits of nicotine in each cigarette. Now, this is already going on in Europe. All right, in Europe, the maximum amount of nicotine, I believe, is like 9 milligrams. And that is equivalent to what we would have considered in the past to be a light cigarette. All right, used to be uh, 16, 17 was a full flavored, uh, 11, 12 was a light, you know, 6 or 7 was an ultra light, and, and so on and so on. Well, now in Europe, what they've done is they have engineered every cigarette to last for, are you ready for this? It will smoke for three minutes or nine puffs. That's it. And the maximum amount of nicotine in a cigarette is nine milligrams. And then you have lights that are below that. So they've already started this in Europe and it's coming here to the United States of America where the FDA's goal is to remove nicotine completely from the market. Okay. How does that affect pipe tobacco and cigars? I don't know. I really don't know, but nicotine is a natural byproduct. And remember, it's a natural byproduct of the nightshade family as well. So the potato plant, the leaves, the tomato plant, the leaves, those all have nicotine in them. And there are small traces of nicotine in tomatoes and potatoes. And some of the other peppers have natural nicotine occurring. So are they going to go after all of those plants too? I don't think so. Uh, but I guarantee if we started smoking them, they'd go after it as well. Uh, again, I don't know how this affects pipe tobacco. I'll be interested to follow it. You know, the FDA's asked for an open comment period about it, which means that they don't really care and they just want to give us some lip service. So uh, there you go. We'll keep an eye on that and I'll let you know what I hear and see and find out. But uh, hard to believe a nicotine free society is uh, close at hand. All right. Remember, please share and uh, tell all your friends and your enemies about the Pipes Magazine radio show and uh, give us a like on Facebook and all that other gibberish. I want to uh, thank Charlie for hooking me up with Eric. Thank Eric Hollenbeck for joining us and for all he's doing. And thank you for tuning in. And now I'll say until next time. Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy No, no, don't do that. If you shoot him, you'll just make him mad.